to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is the lovely Irene. Um, it, you can, If you want to join a conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663, and Irene will get you two, through to us. Um, and you can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Seagrass is in decline around Florida, including Tampa and Sarasota Bays, and that's proven deadly for our beloved manatees. Tampa Bay, uh, which had seen an increase in seagrass for a decade, lost 4,100 acres between 2020 and 2022. Sarasota Bay saw a 26% decline from 2016 to 2022. Seagrass is vital to marine life, particularly manatees. Our guest today is trying to save the manatees by restoring the seagrass that sustains them. Tom Reese is president and founder of Ecosphere Restoration Institute, a nonprofit group that recently was awarded $5 million in funding from the state legislature to plant seagrass. Welcome to Wavemakers, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate it. Tom has decades of experience in restoring natural systems in southwest Florida. In 2013, he received a National Wetlands Award in Conservation and Restoration from the Environmental Law Institute in Washington, D.C. He helped restore the Eulalie Springs in Tampa Heights, which was the city's original drinking water source. And he's worked on projects in Ruskin and beyond. We'll get to those later, uh, but let's start with the $5 million project to plant seagrass and save manatees. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, about 800 manatees died statewide in 2022. That was above the five-year average of 741, although a tiny bright spot, it was lower than the more than 1,100 that died in 2021. Tom, what is going on there and how will this project help the manatees? Well, first of all, what's going on on the East Coast is we've really lost a lot of seagrass over there. And that was caused by discharging water to avoid to avoid flooding. And unfortunately, it was such an amount of dirty water that it um, blocked out the sun. So they lost all the seagrass there. And seagrass is a main f- food for manatees. So it is a big issue to restore that. This grass is completely gone. There's no seeds. There's no roots left, no rhizomes underground. And so if we don't go over there and plant some, it's going to take years for it to naturally come back. And do we know that it is the seagrass that is uh, the loss of the seagrass that is actually causing these deaths of the manatees? To what extent is that a direct cause? Well, there's unfortunately an average number of seagrass that die, I mean, manatees that die every year. And then there's two years after that discharge, that number is much higher. And we know that they're dying from starvation. From starvation, yeah. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, I believe, says that the majority of of the the death, the starvation and malnutrition was the cause of most of the deaths in the early part of 2022. So there's some, we have some sense that it actually really is a direct impact on the manatees. 
And where on the East Coast are we talking about? Is that the Indian River Lagoon or East Coast? That's a big uh, area. So where are you going to be focusing? Well, the Indian River Lagoon is about a 150-mile-long lagoon with just three openings to the Atlantic Ocean. So if you get a big flush of dirty water, it takes a while for that to get out those three openings. Um, and so that's where we want to concentrate. The water quality is back now, right? But there is no seagrass there. And so if we can inoculate those areas one acre at a time, those grasses should expand. Now, it doesn't take care of the problem of the water quality, right? We, that has to be done, and that's going to cost a lot of money. But at least for now, if we can get the grass growing while the water quality is back, that'll provide um, food for the manatees. And what's the situation in Tampa Bay? Situation in Tampa Bay is, is also not as good. I mean, we were increasing seagrasses, exceeding the 1950s numbers. Um, but then the last three iterations, we've been losing grass. Now, a couple of reasons for that. One, we had an extremely bad episode of red tide. Um, that was ex exacerbated by the Piney Point discharge. There's a pretty good connection for that. You know, 80,000 pounds of fertilizer equivalent being dumped into the bay right when we have red tide. Um, that really makes it extremely bad. It was as bad as it was for 50 years since the last one we've had. And so that, again, kills seagrass. And it, it affected Tampa Bay and it affected Sarasota Bay, both because of red tide being persistent. Now, you said the last three iterations. What do you mean by that? How often do you do seagrass counts? Every two years, the Water Management District flies and maps seagrass. I used to run that program when I worked there. And... Um, that's a great way of seeing, you know, these trends improving. And in this case, now sagging our numbers. And it's fine that that happens maybe one time, but three years, three iterations at a time over six years. Over six years, you're losing seagrass. They do that statewide, you said, because you worked at Swift Mud, but they do it statewide. Well, the, those, those surveys are done statewide by each water management district? Um, kind of. The Southwest Florida Water Management District does it every two years, and so does St. John's now. But South Florida was doing it every five years, and some of the water management districts didn't have the funds for that. So it's not uniformly done over the entire state every two years. But every two to five years, somebody's doing it. So we have good information on this, and um, that just shows not only that the seagrasses are, are getting less, um, it also shows that it's thinning out. In other words, areas that used to be mapped as continuous grass still has grass, but now it's patchy. And then other areas that were patchy are gone. So we have to use that as a sign that, hey, there's something wrong here. We need to continue to improve our water quality entering the, the bay because that's what considers, I mean, that drives a light. And what are the, the main causes? Is it all just about discharge? What are the causes of the dying seagrass? Does it have to do with climate change? Is it all human impact and releases? What, what are the causes of the, of the death of the seagrass? You know, these are good questions because it's, it's a combination, okay? We allow development, right? And that's fine. And we even have rules. But is it fine? No, just okay. <laughs> well, it is if it's, if it's done right. Yeah, okay? right. And so right now the rules are you have to do water atten attenuation and treatment. We found out, though, the presumptive rules by the Water Management District and DEP, they're not as effective as they thought. They thought if you build a pond of this size and treat a half inch of water, that'll take out the nitrogen. Well, it doesn't, not on wet detention ponds. So the rules need to be strengthened for wet detention type treatment. If we don't do that, then even though we have those rules in place, 
We're still adding more nitrogen for an estuary. That's a problem. That's a limiting factor for if you have too much nitrogen, then you get chlorophyll A or other algaes growing, which blocks the sun to get to the bottom, which affects seagrass. What about boating? Does that cause, like, just recreation on the water? Does that have an impact? Indirectly, it does. I mean, we have a lot of hardened shorelines in Florida, especially in this area. And so boat wakes hit these way, these walls, and that resuspends the sediment. So if we had living shorelines, well, then the boat wakes wouldn't matter. Um, but since we do have hardened shorelines, then boat, increased boat fact, it does have its effect. And the connection between uh, red tide and nitrogen, that's the key here. That, does the nitrogen feed the red tide? It does. And so the red tide is a natural thing. That was here before we were here. Um, but it, is, it's, it gets exasperated by too much nitrogen or any nutrients in the water. So once you have red tide, yes, it, it's a natural thing. But when it, it gets so strong that it completely blocks out the sun, then that's a problem. And it has been, and especially after the Piney Point incident. Um, I've got a couple emails. Um, We've got um, David Bryant. David, thanks for sending us this email. Um, He doesn't have a question, but he has a comment. He says, thank you for today's show and guests. I think that DeSantis gives zero craps about the manatees. I can even imagine him holding a fundraiser dinner with marinated manatee meat on the menu. Very nice alliteration, David. Just to prove that he's a manly man, more alliteration, and doesn't have a woke mind virus. So David is saying that, but apparently DeSantis did approve this funding, this $5 million in funding to plant seagrass, correct? I mean, he had to, he didn't veto it anyway. No, exactly. And I was surprised and glad for that, right? We need this funding now because um, without it, we can't do this. And if if no one's going out there and planting, it's going to take a long time for it to naturally come back. And the mantis can't wait. Right. Um, We have another um, text message from Bubba. Um, Bubba's wondering, is the seagrass death death partially due to extremely high sea temperatures? And what about poo-poo from leaking leaking septic tanks? I can see where areas like Port St. Lucie could contribute to the stinky stuff fouling our waters. So what about that high sea temperatures and leaking septic tanks? Does that weigh into it? Especially the latter does. Septic tanks are a problem in areas where they're, I mean, septic tanks work really well, except you need four foot of separation from the bottom to the groundwater. And in Florida, we're so flat, it only works when you're in higher elevations. And so in low elevations, septic tanks have a tendency to leak, and that's providing nitrogen to the water. As far as temperature is going, there's a lot of research has been done with seagrass on what their temperature tolerances, and they have a pretty wide range. I'm not sure if the temperature is. I think sea level rise are going to have more effect on them than higher water temperatures. Interesting. Why sea level rise? Well, right now, seagrass grows down as as deep as it can, right? So light gets only 22% of the light has to hit the bottom. Now, if you we have six inches in the last three decades increase, and we're going to keep increasing now it's not going to be able to get down as deep as it was. Would it just move in, though, as it, you know what I mean? As the coastline moves in, it would just, the seagrass would go with it. It should, as long as they're not pinched, right? If there's infrastructure and stuff, then there's no way for whether it's the emergent plants. Community can't move up if it's hitting a road or a house. Um, and the same with the seagrass. It only can go up so much. So, most of the seagrass when we see is growing from a, a certain depth on the shallow side. Mm-hmm. On the deep side, it's always trying to grow, but it needs enough light. As soon as we limit that, it's pinching in on that side. So 
there's not much room for seagrass to go up until the water goes up, and then it can't hit something, right? If there's infrastructure, there's a problem. Uh, uh, just going, uh, continuing on that note about the the, the seawater temperature rising, because it does affect the coral. We know it's affecting the coral. There's no um, relationship between coral and seagrass. Like, would the death of the coral then impact the death of the seagrass, or they're completely separate? They're pretty much separate. Um, the corals are dying because of the heat, right? The heat itself is just they can't handle that kind of heat. Seagrass can handle heat. Now, obviously, there's an upper limit for them, too, but it's we're not going to get into that point for them. So they really are separate. Now, Tampa Bay is a very large estuary. First of all, why did we see seagrass increase? And what parts of Tampa Bay were doing well before the last few years when we saw the decline? Well, all parts did well. And and no one was planting seagrass, right? This is grass coming back because we're improving water quality. Um, so there's a lot of things that are going around the Tampa Bay Estuary Program, working with the Nitrogen Consortium to reduce nitrogen atmospheric deposition on the bay. And so that's really helped and getting entities to do more retrofitting because a lot of the stuff that was built in Pinellas County and all of downtown Tampa was before there was any environmental rules. So anything in downtown Tampa or most of Pinellas County runs directly into the bay because there was no rules then to have stormwater ponds. So hmm. we need to retrofit. And, and, and even though it's really good to allow infilling because we don't want urban sprawl, right? But you're grandfathered in. You don't have to do any treatment. Well, that has to change. Those type things are important because if we're going to allow infilling, which we should, you have to do something to to take care of that runoff. You didn't do it here before, but you're the new owner of the land. And so there's ways of maybe... Inst- providing some funds to do it or do, you know, LID, which is light impact development or stormwater like rain gardens, do something to keep that water from coming in. So all this, all this work that had been done prior to 2016, we saw the results in seagrass. We exceeded the 1950s numbers, which was a success story around the world, a very amazing situation. But and it happened in all parts of the Bay. But what's happening here, our seagrass losses for Tampa Bay, for example, are happening in the upper parts of the Bay, Hillsborough Bay and Old Tampa Bay. Those both have issues because, we'll start with Old Tampa Bay. We have three bridges crossing. All of them have causeways, especially the Courtney Campbell Causeway. It's such a big causeway. There's no circulation for above there. And so... That, those seagrass that are trying to grow there are barely growing. It's just, they just don't have good flushing of, of good water coming in from mm-hmm. the Gulf. And so it's important to know that that's where the losses are. Middle Tampa Bay lost some seagrass and lower Tampa Bay really didn't lose any. It's the upper parts of the bay that need to be addressed because those areas are not getting the flushing that they need to keep that grass that they started growing in 2016 to come back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers and WMNF, and our guest is Tom Reese, and he is working to restore seagrass around the state of Florida to um, save the manatees who rely on the seagrass um, to survive. If you want to join the conversation or have a question, you can send us an email to dj at wmnf.org or give us a call at 813 813- Two three nine nine six six three. We've got John from Lutz on the line. Um, he's got a question. John, um, you're you're on the air. What's on your mind? Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. 
Um, I read recently that um, clam populations are being restored in the Indian River um, Lagoon area to help with water quality and with the seagrasses. That, uh, and I wondered, is, are, is there a need and is there anything being done to restore uh, clam populations in the Tampa Bay area? Well, John, that's a good question. Um, there are activities here, especially in Sarasota Bay, where they're trying to put clams in to help filter the water. Um, oysters also would be really good. The more oysters we can get in in these in the right locations really do help clean up the water. Every single oyster can filter 50 gallons of water a day. And if you have thousands and thousands of oysters, which you can have on an oyster bed. Mm, that, that sounds good. It does. <laughs> and so we, we do a lot of work trying to get back um, oyster beds. We're helping Phil- Pinellas County at Philippe Park. We just did it this past weekend. We have two more Saturdays where we're putting lo- loose oyster shell in. And it's the right salinity for oysters to colonize. And the baby oyster, they're called spat, they'll, they really prefer to land on oyster shell over other hard substances. So whether it's clams or whether it's oysters, they do help clean up the water. So yeah, that's happening in here. And let's see how well that does because it takes a lot of oysters to clean up as much water that comes into this bay. Thanks for the call, John. Now, um, Thank you. Th- thanks for calling, John. Uh, we have talked uh, quite a bit about manatees and everybody loves manatees. They're, they're, they're endangered and they're lovable and they're the state mammal. Uh, but there's a lot of other reasons to restore seagrass, right? Why else is seagrass important to uh, our estuaries? Yeah, Tom, because obviously the manatees, that's their main food source. But seagrass itself provides incredible habitat for shrimp and fish. Just the structure of the seagrass gives areas for juvenile fish to hide from their predators. And they also help stabilize the bottom. If there are big ship wakes or wakes coming by, it has a tendency to resuspend the sediments. Not where there's seagrass, right? That holds everything in place. So it helps keep the water clean. Besides all the um, benefits it does for fish and, and shrimp, etc. And so where'd you get the idea to ask the legislature for $5 million, or did you ask them for more than that and they gave you five? <laughs> Uh, (laughs) So that, oh, I'm I'm sitting around thinking, how can I do something? Let me go get millions of dollars from the legislature. How did that happen? Well, first of all, that number is not just an arbitrary number. We know what it costs to plant an acre of seagrass, and we wanted to do as many as we could. So we backed into it, 100 acres. If we could do 100 acres statewide, that's going to be beneficial. So that's how the the dollar figure came out. And so we just approached the state legislators, both on both the House and the Senate side, and and we have people that wanted to sponsor it. Is there a legislator you'd like to mention who kind of spearheaded this? Um, I'm not, I will save that for later if we can. Um, Because, yeah, both having the sponsorship is super important. Um, But I will say that you still have to get through to get it, this governor not to veto it. The governor this that round had vetoed $3 billion worth of legislation. Um, and I just thought, you know, maybe this was not going to make it through. So I, I didn't have my hopes up. But when we got it, we were very elated because now we can do something. We can physically do something and it'll it'll make a difference. It just, I know it's 100 acres and when we lost thousands. It's not, this is not a fix it. What it is, is a jump start. 
to get the natural colonization now where the water quality is back to start growing grass so that we get all the benefits we talked about, whether it's for manatee or the fish or shrimp, et cetera. And how do you actually go about doing this? What, what, what's involved in planting seagrass? You have to... Go around with a little shovel you and have a to get scuba gear on and yeah, seedlings from a Home Depot. Because <laughs> it's fascinating that you're using actual oyster shells to try to get oysters to attach to the oyster shells. So, how do you get seagrass to grow? Well, that's a great question because it's not easy to grow seagrass. Okay, I mean, if you want to do wetlands, that's hard enough to do. You got to get the water hydrology right, the elevations right, right species, blah blah blah. And still, wetland restoration is a little tougher to do. But seagrass, for the last 33 years, there was a study done by USF, and they looked at 33 years of seagrass plantings. Now, almost all of those were for mitigation. In other words, somebody got a permit to put a marina in or something, and and unavoidable impacts occurred to seagrass. So they have to mitigate. So So they they plant it someplace else, right? right? Where it won't die. Yep. And the problem is, if you don't know what you're doing, you look at a map and go, oh, there's seagrass here and there's seagrass here, and there's none in the middle, we'll plant it there. But if you had looked at the maps over years, there's never been seagrass there. There's something in the sediments, something that's for whatever reason, because seagrass is going to expand anywhere it can. And so they would plant it in that spot that looks like a bare spot, and it wouldn't live. So there was a very low success rate because people weren't, doing it without experience. Um, but if you get the right people to do it, so there's a couple firms in the state that are really good at this. And so we partnered with one of those, and that's Aquatech um, Eco Consultants. They have a lot of years experience putting seagrass in. So, but okay, so they have experience. Where are you going to get the material, right? They have a license to harvest it. And there are a few places in the state where the state bottoms are not owned by the state. There's only a few of them. They're privately held. So we work on those type properties where we harvest grass. Then we take it to their nursery and grow it there. And so then it grows in these tanks, and now it, of course, expands. And so then you can plant it where you need to. In some cases, we can um, harvest it because it's right next to a place that they're allowed to harvest, and just move it directly in because you don't want to handle it too much. It's a very sensitive plant. Um, but if it's done right, it really is take two fingers and put the rhizomes in the ground a rhizome being the root, you want a certain length of root with so many shoots coming up mm-hmm. and they put it in the ground and we're seeing some very good success with this. Do you have to like where, is it shallow enough? You just put it in? You'd... Yeah, we want to work in the best locations. We, You know, seagrass can grow, which depends where you are, six feet down, nine feet down at the lower Tampa Bay areas. But where we're working are in the shallow areas, or like two to three feet and we have the right sediments where we know grass is, was before and the water quality is back. Or it's an area that was a restoration site and it's been in the ground now for about 10 years. Let's see if we can get seagrass to work in that. And so one of those type projects is the Rock Ponds, which is the biggest restoration project ever done in Tampa Bay, down in, in the lower part of Hillsborough Bay. And so that's been in the ground for 10 years. We put in two acres of seagrass in there back in April. And part of our, our funding is we have a grant with um, an agreement with USF and their, their seagrass scientists are coming in behind and not going to look at 100 locations statewide. They're taking a subset, but they're going to go look at these and they just were out this week. And we have 
really good success at that rock pines location. In fact, one of the comments from one of the researchers is like swimming a seagrass meadow when there was none there in April. And we planted at, planted at about 18 inches apart, these sprigs, and they're all growing out and starting to coalesce. And so that's a good indication. But still, seagrass planting is a difficult thing. It doesn't work 100%. You'll never get you know, like 100% survival. I don't ever seen a project ever that. You're lucky to get 60%. But the good news is that study that we did, that USF did years ago, showed that even though some places is only 40% survival, 30 years later, 80% of that that survived is still there. We've gotten a couple of emails uh, with a similar theme, uh, one oh. from Wendy and uh, one from Andy, asking how uh, folks can uh, volunteer to help. And Wendy said she's done it in the past and would like to do it again. Can they participate in this? Well, what we're trying to do is we have a contractor that has professional all the gear, has a harvesting license, the professional staff to do it. So most of what we're doing is through the contractors. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have extra grass and we can get people involved because you want people to be involved so they, are, they, they own the site. They, they really help to participate. So you know where Eulalie Springs is, right? Mm-hmm. And um, every time we plant grass, whether it's marsh grass, the manatees come in and eat it. I want to say for those who don't, Eulalie Springs is by the Eulalie Restaurant, which is just north of downtown on the Hillsborough River. Yeah, Your armature works. So. Yeah, and it's three miles up from Hillsborough Way, Bay, which is seawalled the entire way. So if you're a manatee, there's no food source for you, right? So all of a sudden, we open up the seawall, and we open up the connection and let the daylight, the spring run to the river back in 2014. So they always go in there, and they're, and they're hungry, right? Oh, so, uh, so, so that's why we see more manatees in the Hillsborough yeah. River, because I, I know people are saying, which is, that's fantastic, because there yeah. is more activity on the river altogether. It's amazing what's happened in the Hillsborough River in Downtown so the word Tampa. got out in the manatee community, there's good eats at Eulalie. <laughs> it must be true because we have 33 different manatees that we know by, by their, their prop scars, unfortunately, and a lot of cases. But we've identified 33 animals that come in there regular and eat. That's great. So back to your question, for volunteers to get out, we did plant some seagrass in the spring at Eulalie using volunteers. Um, and they lasted about three weeks, but the mantis find them, and unfortunately, <laughs> the roots haven't held yet, and so they take the top and the bottom. But it's okay. These are extra plants that we have, and we can get volunteers to put them in. But for the 100 acres, we're going to stick with the, with the contractor just because we want our best success rate because there's, both have their importance. But it's, it's, that's kind of nice, though, to get together and put out food for the manatees in the spring. Um, where are those 100 acres? Are they all around the state? It, or is it, where, can you tell us where they are geographically? Yeah, well, we've only put in 12. <laughs> okay, but where, the, the plan, the $5 million will go for what locations around the state? Well, we, we want to go statewide. Right now, where we've planted, we've planted in three different water management districts, up in the Panhandle. We've planted down on the, on the southwest coast of Florida, obviously in the southwest Florida water management district in Tampa Bay. And why are we planting here and not jumping directly over on the east coast where we need them? Well, you need permits, as silly as that might sound, for me to take my fingers and put grass in, you need a state permit and a federal permit to do that. And that takes time. Even if you're doing a restoration project, you have to get these permits, and that just takes time. So while we're getting permits, we are working in places where there are permits already. They just didn't have the funding to put them in. 
So we're working with FWC on sites that they have permitted. DEP has some sites that are permitted. There are, the water management districts has sites. So we're working now, but we're gearing up. And to answer your question, I would say probably 60% is going to go on the East Coast. But we are going to work down in South Florida. We're going to work wherever there's been seagrass losses. Um, Daryl from St. Pete has been patiently waiting. Um, he's got a question. Uh, Daryl, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Actually, not a question. He's actually discussed two things of interest. He was talking about the planting seagrass beds. I uh, I grew up here. I'm in my 70s uh, here in St. Petersburg, and I spent a lot of time not only on the water but under the water. So I'm very familiar with a lot of things that have disappeared out of Tampa Bay, such as sawfish, etc. But uh, one of the people I grew up with, uh, he has a nursery over in Ruskin, and maybe the gentleman is familiar with him, James Anderson, Jim Anderson, and he pioneered this a long time ago because he, he had a big nursery. He started cultivating native grasses of various species, uh, but then he, he was a uh, avid fisherman, and they were going to close down his fishing area because of the scarring from the propellers, as maybe it's been discussed here. And uh, he said, well, why don't we, and so that got him interested. He began developing the technologies to address the seagrass restoration needs. And he's got biologists. He's gone all over the state uh, restoring uh, seagrass beds, growing that. And um, so I'm, I'm assuming the gentleman maybe knows about a lot of the work that he's done. But he was he got started because he's such an avid fisherman, and they were shutting down the some of his favorite mm-hmm. places. But the second part of this is, and I'm wondering whether this, um, whether there's any way that this can be applicable. I have 105 acres of submerged land alongside the Skyway Bridge, to the west of the channel uh, by the second bridge of the Skyway Bridge. It's been in the family since 1955. And would like to do, I've always been an environmental person. I basically inherited this from the family. Unfortunately, uh, there was a recent passing. And, but I've been an environmentalist all my life. I've been actively engaged. And the family was Pinella Seafood Company, who um, my aunt and uncle built it into a mega multi-million dollar business. He was an old mullet fisherman. And so, you know, their life was on the sea, and eventually he sold it to one of their customers, which was Red Lobster. <laughs> but uh, the the submerged land is still in, is now with me. I'm the sole, you might say, survivor of this. And I would like to see something um, like has been discussed about oysters or seagrass. Uh, I think um, Jim Anderson, I believe he's kind of maybe, his son's involved, but I think he's kind of maybe backing out because he's in the 70s like me <laughs> and he may be uh, retiring somewhat out of this but um so because uh, i was trying to interest him in it but i unfortunately ended up in the hospital for three months during all this so i, I kind of lost touch with him because i ended up with a severe what do you think um, tom what do you know about what's happening thank you for the call daryl sure Mm-hmm. Keep yeah, up Dar- with the work. Daryl, that's great. I appreciate you um, calling in. First of all, I'd like to say we should talk because maybe we can work on doing some restoration on that's that property. That's what I'd like to do. Yes, sir. And also maybe it can be a, a source of a harvest material. So mm-hmm. when you privately own like that, that would be good. So 
contacting me yeah, through the ecosphere. Water, I think is about the. It's not very deep. Uh, the shallowest of the land, it runs basically. You might say a rectangle. If you're familiar with the Skyway Bridge, it's near to the west of the second bridge of the Skyway. In other words, between the Skyway and. Fort DeSoto. Hey, Daryl, how about if you send us your contact information to dj at wmnf.org, and I will pass it off to Tom. Can you do that? Yes. Thanks and, very uh, much. Fantastic. Right. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you the call. so much for calling. I, and I, this does Wait. raise one interesting yeah, I about just, the private... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Tom. No, that's right, Tom. Uh, I was just going to say that, Daryl, the last thing is, yeah, I know Jim Emerson well. Before he even started any of this stuff, we worked with him when I was doing restoration with SWIM at Cockroach Bay. Um, yeah, Jim is doing some seagrass work, and where we're it's possible, we, we'll collaborate on that. So, you know, I appreciate you mentioning him. But, yeah, where, where it works, we'll, we'll work with anyone so we can get th- our big overall objective is to get seagrass planted and help the manage. And, Daryl, send us that um, that email to dj at wmnf.org. John from Dunedin has also been patiently holding. John from Dunedin, you are on the line. What's up? Uh, well, I uh, used to live down by Maximum Moorings, by the Skyway, and we had dock restrictions for preserved seagrass, and we actually had manatees. I used to do a lot of windsurfing. I'd scare the manatees. They'd scare me. But one manatee in particular had a buoy attached to it, and I thought it got caught in a fishing line, so I called up the manatee hotline, and they had me read off the last four numbers, and they said, that manatee is tagged. It's not tagged. It has a, a buoy on it. And that was Brevi. She was caught in a red tide down in Sarasota. Nurse back to health at Noah's Lowry Park Zoo. Released at the Fico Power Station. She was halfway home, and it was a big bull all on her. It was really interesting to get the history of a manatee. So, Thanks for the call, John. It's amazing. They, they do great work at Lowry Park Zoo. It's amazing how many animals, they, I mean, panthers and manatees and just got to say, shout out to Lowry Park Zoo for all the good work that they do beyond just showing animals. Um, we've got Kitty Wallace has an, a question for Tom. Um, she says, you mentioned natural or living shorelines. Is there any funding available, available from state or the federal government to increase living shorelines? Hey, Kitty, good talking to you. Um, yes, um, there is funding, and that's a really good thing is they, the state has funding for resilient shorelines, okay? And we w- we've helped a number of municipalities around here and counties get some of that money. Pinellas County got over a million dollars for Felipe Park. We work with Treasure Island to get $1.2 million because they have 3,000 linear foot of seawalled area, and they're, we're going we're gonna to take the seawall out. And because there's no need for it in that part. And in part of that 3,000 acres, about 1,000 of it um, is protected as far as physically, so there's no waves. And so we're going to take it out and put a real living shoreline in, saving them tons of money because their seawall is ready to collapse. And the part that's facing the ICW, the intercoastal waterway where there's boat wakes, we can't take the whole wall out, but we're going to make it a seawall enhancement project. So there is funding available, and states, I mean, all the cities around here are are tracking it, but there is funding, and luckily it's coming in in this area. So that's just a small subset of the city of Gulfport, a number of entities. Um, I was involved with trying to get funding locally so we can get living shorelines in. In fact, we did a living shoreline demo project with FWC at Apollo Beach at the Tico Manti Viewing Center. So we put in a seawall, a piece of a seawall, and we put a a living seawall next to it. And then we did 
oyster domes, oyster bags, and all these different treatments that people should know about. Because just because you buy property and has a seawall doesn't mean it has to stay there. In most cases, even for City of um, Safety Harbor, we took their entire seawall out, and that was a high-energy situation. But when Hurricane... um, one of the hurricanes came through, we went the very next day, and it totally held. So we know these things work. It's just people don't know they exist. You're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is Tom Reese, who is uh, working to save the manatees by planting seagrass around the state of Florida. Um, if you want to join a conversation, you can send us an email to dj at wmnf.org, or you can uh, call us at 813-239-9663. This, of course, is a new show, but there's lots of great music on WMNF. Let's hear a little bit about... Um, a show that is not, uh, some programming that is not on the WMNF broadcast channel, but actually on one of the HD2 channels. Listen to this. If you love classic soul, R&B, Caribbean, gospel, hip-hop, or house music, and if you love podcasting and exclusive interviews, if you love urban culture and urban music, then you will really love the Urban Cafe channel. You can find it here on HD2 if you have an HD2 radio, or you can go to WMNF.org and download our mobile app so that you can listen to it all the time. And I have to say, Tom and I, when we are in the car, frequently tune to HD2 and listen to the Urban Cafe and never, never, never disappoints. It's Always terrific. great music. It's so terrific. check it out if you're, if you're not familiar with that. Um, we have an email from... Um, Fez, who says, um, when I used to go out and see seagrasses 15 years ago, they were filled with puffer, puffer fish and seahorses, tiny but tons of them. Um, so he he's, wants to know about the seahorses. He says later on he went out with people who told him how the water used to be crystal clear and it wasn't anymore. And Fez, I went out one time with some folks who were counting the seagra- seahorses, did a seagrass seahorse count, which helps determine the health of the seagrass. What do you know about seahorses, Tom? What can you tell us? I'm not an expert about seahorses, but I do know they need seagrass. Yeah. I mean, that's what they hang on. They hang on with their tail and so, so they can eat. Um, so, you know, it affects restoring seagrass is great for the manatees. Obviously, that's why we, you know, could get funding for it. But it's you don't have to be a charismatic megafauna like a manatee to get <laughs> to get funding. You need funding for the seahorses, for the fish, the yeah. pinfish, everything that yeah, uses fish. pinfish. Yeah, Pin, right. you know. Yeah, it was it was a cool thing. I can't remember what group I was out with, but we were we went out and you scoop up the water and you go through and you count the seahorses. And if there are more seahorses, that means that the seagrass is seagrass is healthier. Um, we've got a comment from um, Jerome who says, how about the state issues one less medical marijuana grow license and one more seagrass grow license? Oh, that's right. The seagrass growers don't pay enough. So there's an idea. Um, and then Annie Ellis, who hosts the Sustainability of Sustainable Living show on, w, on uh, WMNF on Mondays, another really, really great show, says she had the Brevard Zoo folks on her show, um, and they um, talked about planting clams. They planted one million seed-sized clams in nursery bags on the lagoon bottom, um, and uh, they grew to the size of a tennis ball in just nine months. Over 8 million clams were planted throughout three lagoon basins. She says they're doing great work. And clams help clean the water too? 
like oysters? They do. They do. And I, I don't know which one does better. We know more, we have more information on oysters and we know exactly, you know, how much they can filter, but both of them are filter feeders. And mm-hmm. so if we can get some improvements in water quality with natural organisms, let's do it. Yeah. Um, we've got um, Amy from St. Pete on the line. Amy from St. Pete, you are on the line. What's up? Yeah. Hi. Um, just a couple of questions. Um, reclaimed water at the parks, especially if it's if the reclaimed water is running off into the shallows, like say Laughing Park and and uh, St. Pete, and also you know how that affects steel or or otherwise, and also um, the stormwater pollution issues we know are uh, very bad. And what money or funds has come from the um, oil spills? Uh, the, mm. the money that we got did what money is going towards restoration of seagrasses i've always wondered that amy that's a good question we'll start with your first one yeah the water quality that comes off of reclaimed water is not that good i mean it's better than what they used to do right i mean they're they're treating it but still the nitrogen and phosphorus is high so it's best for that to not enter the water i mean it's great to water your lawn but you want to, don't want to overwater your lawn you don't want it to go directly into the water supply or the bay because it's a two is high in nitrogen. And so we, we're really trying to limit nitrogen. Now, as far as the oil spill money, how much of it went directly for seagrass? I don't know of any. I mean, I'm sure they did some good things for the environment. I'm not trying to say no one's wasting that money. I'm just saying directly planting seagrass. I don't think anybody was doing that um, because you got to do it the right and you got to make you can't just put it out anywhere you got to know why it's not that the grass is not there or in a case like right now where we're declining grass you want to put it back where it used to be if the water quality is good so good questions um i, I do think we need to do more for seagrass um funding wise i know five million is a lot of money but if you're if you're you know, we got could, we got the second largest shoreline uh, in this in the country in Florida, yeah. <laughs> so that's five million dollars, but won't cover it all. I'm sure. Thanks for the call, Amy. Thank you. Bye. Um, we've got also um, Brianna from St. Pete. Brianna from St. Pete, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Thanks so much. Um, I just wanted to thank you, Tom, um, for touching on the topic. I I didn't know so much about it myself. Um, we we went out sign netting during red tide and it was just horrendous, you know, horrendous to see the beaches like that and the water supply. So, um, thank you so much for touching on this. I know we'll be volunteering. So, um, thank you so much again. Thanks for the call, Brianna. Um, and then we have a call from Matt, um, who, uh, an email from Matt Riola who says, um, is, says the Living Shoreline Project in Treasure Island is around the municipal golf course. How do the fertilizers um, of a golf course complicate the benefits of the Living Shoreline? That's a good question, Matt. What do you think, Tom? Get rid of the golf courses. Well, you know, there's there's a group that really wants to take that golf course out because it's losing money. It's losing a lot of money and it's the city's you know, it's losing money because it's, it's a really wet course. They don't get a lot of activity. Now, people that live around it, of course, that's an amenity for them. So the question is, you know, the fertilizers they put in on the golf courses, they are usually 
too much fertilizer because they want the course to be, you know, pristine. Luckily for the Treasure Island Golf Course, they're not putting in a lot of nutrients. They have two stormwater ponds on site. One was directly connected to Bocasiega Bay and the other one's connected intertidally um, between the two. And so part of this restoration project where they're taking that to seawall, we are going to improve those ponds. First of all, we're going to cut them off from directly pouring into the Cocosiega Bay. And we're going to take all the legacy chemicals, sediments, and excavate it out of those two ponds and then put littoral shells with native plants around so they clean up the water. And then so they're only intermittently connected. When they do connect and discharge, they'll have clean water going out. So it's always a concern near golf courses. We've, ta- we've taken a lot of golf courses over the years and transformed them into you know, productive ecosystems mm-hmm. um, because Fantastic. they're losing money, right? Um, so anyway, I think it's a good, it's, it's a real good question, and at least it's going to be better in the in the future at that site. We have an email from Gary Gibbons. He says, "I love to fish, and I have a boat, but I also love to use my stand-up paddleboard. Unfortunately, the massive expansion of the number of boaters, especially flat boats that allow fishermen to access the shallowest waters, is taking a toll on our seagrass beds." From my paddleboard, I f- frequently see prop scars where boats have crisscrossed through the areas around Fort DeSoto and other areas of seagrass close to mangrove islands. There are some areas that are marked with no combustion engines allowed signs, but not enough of those areas. So he's got two questions for you, Tom. Have those areas, the no combustion engines allowed areas, helped to protect the seagrass? And also, how can we get more of those zones and more enforcement to protect those areas? Well, those exclusion zones do help. They really do. I mean, if the people are following the rules and you're not going to have these prop scars, I will say that probably 85% of the prop scars aren't people purposely doing this. They just don't realize it's too shallow or their boat that's a flats boat. It's a limit on how far it can go too and without causing prop scars. And prop scars, if they're deep ones, they take five to seven years to heal. And that's interesting. You're talking about prop scars on seagrass. I always thought of prop scars on manatees, but they actually slice through the grass as well. Yeah, and they, there's thousands, thousands of them and literally hundreds of miles of them. And back when with the question earlier about when we were trying to close off a portion of Cockroach Bay, because it was so prop scarred, there was almost no seagrass back. A lot of fishermen, you know, reacted and tried to stop that. And we were like, no, we, we will allow you to come in on high tide, but at low tide, you can't, we want to close it just because of prop scars. Unfortunately, that never went through. But those exclusion areas, I know that limits where people can go, but we need to do those to heal it. Let the area heal for a few years and maybe even plant the grass back in or put sediment tubes so that the, the prop scars are back to the right elevation and then let boats go in there at high tides. You know, there is solutions. We're not trying to keep people out, but at the same time, we have to help Mother Nature a little bit. We're, we're really hurting it in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, that was related to the question that uh, our previous caller, Daryl, had, he has private submerged land that he would like to restore and I believe uh, one of the goals of your nonprofit was to work with private property owners. Can you talk a little bit about um, if you, why that's important? Why that's important? No, Tom, that's a real important thing because the SWIM program and DEP and other agencies, they restore property. And 100% of every one of their projects, which are all good, okay, are on public property, right? Because we're using public dollars on public land. It's easy. Because all of a sudden, if you say, hey, I'm going to take everybody's public dollars and fix 
Joe's property over here, even if it's the best thing for the, the local For economy, everybody, yeah. Yeah, it has a stigma to it. So no one does it. But that's a mistake. There's only 20-some percent of the state, it depends where you are, that's publicly owned. So even if we restored all of those... We're not moving the needle, right? Right, because there's 80% that's not being addressed. Exactly, Janet. And so what we really need to do is work on private property. So as a restoration practitioner, as I'll call myself, I'll look at the geographic area of Tampa Bay or Sarasota Bay, and I'll look in historic imagery, and you'll see these creeks that used to meander down to the bay that were 1940s. They were dredged straight up. And that section of the creek is low salinity, which we call ligahaline-type salinity. That's for all the juvenile fish need to be, the, tr- the redfish, the trout, the, the snook. And so w- that's an important area to fix. Instead, we might be fixing something that's a mile away because it's on public land, which is a good thing, right? It's great. So we're doing projects on private land. So we work with big landowners and say, look, we want to fix this area for you. We're not asking you to fund it, But we will get the funding for you, but we are asking you to protect it. So they have to put a perpetual conservation easement over any area we do. And if you do that, then that opens the door. Why why aren't we fixing where it needs to be fixed? Who cares whether it's public? The fish don't care, Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't care. It also means that that land will be conserved. It won't be developed. And so you won't have high-rise condos and landscaped uh, areas that are going to then pour into the bay with nitrogen, right? So, Exactly. The conservation easements are mostly over wetlands anyway. We're not taking away a lot of their rights or use of their uplands. Um, but that, that public expenditure now is actually protected. Right. Are, are, are there any projects you're working on now that's, that's like that, or, or most of the projects public? Um, most of them are public because, like you lately, I you know, wanted to work with... Who, I wanted to do that project, and it didn't matter whether it was privately owned. The ones that we have our best success were is Tampa Electric Company. Tico has a lot of property down by their power plant, and they're, they're keeping people out of it and stuff, but some of it needs to be restored. So we've come in, got grants for them. They've actually matched on some of that grant money. Good for them. And, they, and so not only are we restoring that, when that started winning awards, they were like, hey, what, what can we do? And I'm like, well, can you buy another section of the creek that's been dredged? And they did it. And so it's a really perfect partnership because we're working where we would never, no one else is working. And we're doing very critical improvements on areas that, again, are publicly held. And it's all now 100 acres under conservation easement because of their work. So I didn't realize you lately, though, was a private project. That, it isn't. Oh, it, I'm just pub- saying yeah. that I usually try and find public-private yeah. partnerships, but that one is such a unique project. I'm like, we're doing this public one here. And, so. and why did you want to do that? Why, why was it so special to you? Well, here we have a spring, two springs that used to flow naturally into the river, and it's now a pipe. I mean, <laughs> there's not much life in that pipe. And the first day when somebody told me that spring was there because none of the books had it in there, people had forgotten it, wasn't mm-hmm. But when I was standing where the pipe was, there was a manatee right there. And I'm like, oh, we're fixing this. <laughs> and, and the city at first was, didn't want us to do it. Not that they weren't supportive of the project. They obviously were. But they were getting ready to do the Waterworks Park. And they said, if you have to get funding, you have to prove you can get funding in six weeks which is very hard to do. But we were able to secure seven grants 
And those seven grants paid the 100% of wow. the cost. So the city, of course, said, well, okay, if you have the money, let's do it. So they worked with us, and it was a great partnership. It was a very expensive project, but it ended up being um, a high note. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a, a lot beauty. of tension. It's a beautiful a spot now. It's a beautiful between spot. Between the restaurant and the park. We have time for one more call. We've got Sean from um, Manatee County on the line. Sean, what's up? Hey, um, I'm also a restoration practitioner and just wanted to chime in and say that um, what I've found in my work is that oftentimes the community is super supportive of the work we do, but um, they all often lack the resources or the knowledge to get involved themselves. And without that active and find that a lot of people kind of, whether intentionally or not, just lose interest or, or move on to something else. And so I was kind of hoping in the last minute or two, you might be able to circle back and um, talk about, you know, what can the average person do? I know we've talked about living shorelines and finding funding. And a lot of this stuff feels really top level for the average person in the community. So like, what are some of the organizations around Tampa, Sarasota, Bradenton, um, who actively recruit volunteers and do native plantings and living shoreline projects? Um, or what else can they do, like, with regard to holding local officials accountable? Um, yeah, just just give me some things I, that would be, you know, good action items for community members who are, like, fired up about this stuff but just don't know where to begin. Sean, that is a great closing question. Thank you yep. for that. You've got about a minute to answer. Yeah, and, and Sean, that's excellent. Well, well we can do easy easy things. We just reduce our carbon footprint, shut your lights off when you don't need them. I mean, these don't sound like it, but it does help. Okay. We have to reduce our footprint. You can do that. Number two, don't over fertilize. Okay. Cause that all runs into the bay or somewhere because there's not many soap water retention ponds or it's definitely not enough. And so you got to do those and then get active. Tampa Bay Watch, Ecosphere. We do projects constantly where we need volunteers picking up garbage or planting. And, and that's more important. I I could hire somebody to do that, but if I have volunteers doing it, they take ownership, they have pride in that, and they get to learn something at that site. So and how do they contact you if they want to do that? You can go to our website um, and just send an email, and we'll put you on our volunteer list. We're and what's, do, the, what's the website address? It's ecosphererestorationinstitute.org. Ecosphererestorationinstitute.org, and that's where you can, get, you can get more information and sign up to become a volunteer. Yes. Thank you. That's great. This has been a great uh, conversation. We've had lots of phone calls, lots of emails, and there's a lot of interest in this. I think people really do want to do something about this this, uh, challenge that we're facing. But as many of our callers have pointed out, they don't know what to do. So it's great. Give us that website one more time. It's Ecosphere... Restorationinstitute.org. And you can reach out to Tom from there. Great. Um, You... Came. How did you? You're retired now. This is like actually your retirement activity. Is that correct? This is you worked for a long time, and now this. So this is actually a real passion of yours. It is, and started 20 years ago. And I was doing it while I was working, and so you could only do a little bit while you full time worked. But now I full time do it. Okay, great, Tom. Thanks for being with us. Stay tuned. Up next is Alternative Radio. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. (laughs) 